Kia ora. My name's Carla and today we're reading from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26 to 56. And I'll just give you some time to find that. I'm, I'm really stoked to be reading from this part of the Bible today because God's been teaching me some important things through Mary, Jesus' mum. He's been really humbling and challenging me this week to just um, strip away the things that might be keeping me from knowing him fully and um, like things that I seek my significance in and that might be, there's so many things that might be surfing or my fitness or physical appearance or my teaching career and he's just been kind of challenging me to um, seek my significance in him and him only. Um, And he's kind of been prompting me to just, um, I guess, empty myself of my selfish desires. And um, as I read this verse, it just made me see that Mary finds her significance in being God's faithful servant. And because of that, God can use her to bring glory to him. Anyway, I hope you've all found it. So, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Thanks, Carla. Um, Just before we kind of get into this passage, I wanted to let people know that tonight, um, 6.15, we're starting the kind of first uni church vision, mission, prayer and planning night. If you're keen to come along, I'd encourage you to catch a bus because the Lantern Festival is on next door. Uh, it'll be in shadows um, in, at Auckland University. 
But um, we're praying for 22 people that would come along and kind of be part of this core team to start up this church. Um, so yeah, if you can be praying for that, as uh, Catherine did earlier. And if you'd like to come along, find out what it's about, then we'd encourage you to come uh, tonight, 6.15. Well, why don't we pray uh, that God would keep fixing us on what He's saying to us in this Word together. Let's pray. Lord, as we've heard Your Word read this morning, uh, we ask that Your Spirit would convict us would lift our eyes to the amazingness of who this baby is and what that means for us. Lord, we ask that as as we sit here this morning, that you'd be changing us and growing us and helping us to see that with you there is nothing that is impossible. And so trusting you with our all. Amen. Where do you think you need to learn to trust God more? What's the next step that God is waiting for you to make? Which promise of God are you kind of keeping at a distance? Not, not really wanting to apply to your life or my life. What word of Jesus do you find hard to believe? What's holding you back from wholeheartedly, 110% betting the house on Jesus? For some of us, God is just simply waiting for us to become Christians, to trust His word of salvation, to understand that Jesus alone is the ruler and the saviour of the world. And for others of us, God's waiting for us to open the doors of our life that we've kept off limits to Him, to surrender control to a far better controller. What's holding you back today? This week, this year. Well, today it's through the words of a woman that we're going to learn. In fact, it's through the words of a 14-year-old girl that we will see that nothing is impossible with the God of the Bible and the incredible implications that has for us. This week, this passage has really challenged me to think through how amazing our God is. That's my prayer that it has that effect on you right now. We'd love you to have the passage open if you've got a Bible there on your phone or there's some at the back if you need one. But the passage begins in chapter 1, verse 26, with this kind of fast chain of facts. You know, it's not unlike a doctor, I'd imagine, standing at the end of your bed in hospital on his morning rounds, stating life-changing observations about you and the world as if they were everyday occurrences. Have a look. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel, Gabriel, was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin, engaged to a man named Joseph in the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and an angel came and said to her, Rejoice, favoured woman, the Lord is with you. Pretty run-of-the-mill kind of stuff, right? (laughs) But the detail lies in the diagnosis of what he's saying. See, an angel is just messenger. That's what the word means, sent one. Uh, The angel's name is Gabriel. Now, this angel, this particular one we see, is pretty rare. It's only mentioned twice in the Bible, on two prior cases. Once back in Daniel, 700 years earlier, and another just six months ago with Zechariah and Elizabeth. All three cases of this guy speaking, this angel, had to do with the arrival of someone important. This messenger has come from the most important place from God. And he's come to a hick town called Nazareth, in the back blocks of Jerusalem, to a woman, a girl, a virgin, not yet even married, engaged to a humble man with maybe an important family line, but a, but a poor family, an insignificant family. What does this diagnosis mean? What is going on? Why is Luke, the physician, telling us these facts up close? Because something extraordinary is about to happen. Something extraordinary is about to happen through a 14-year-old girl. A nobody is about to be a somebody. And a somebody is about to be a nobody. Have a look at verse 30. Then the angel told her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him his name Jesus. 
he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will not end. So the extraordinary as we come to this passage isn't that a virgin will be pregnant, but who she is pregnant with. I remember watching TV probably about eight years ago, um, back in Australia, about this girl from Tasmania. Now, if you know much about Australia, Tasmania is kind of like the, 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 the one that we always forget when we kind of draw the map. It's a little island down the bottom. And it's kind of known as it's kind of out there and there's not, not that many people in it compared to the rest of Australia. Anyway, this girl, her name was Mary. And she was in Sydney and she bumped into a guy at a pub, got chatting. Eventually, they ended up getting married. Now, the thing was, this guy she met in a pub was the crown prince of Denmark. And it kind of struck me as I was watching this wedding between some girl from Tasmania, of all places, marrying the prince of Denmark. And what blew me away was this fact. It wasn't for Mary being like, wow, that's amazing. It was for Mary's parents. See, Mary was just a girl from Tasmania. Bringing her up, the parents would have just been like, yep, you're, you're, it's great. They loved her with all their heart and cared for her and, and, and seen her come up. But they would have had no idea that their grandchildren would be the ruler of Denmark. Not at all. Their grandchildren would be the ruler, the king of Denmark. It struck me, how amazing was this shift? Well, here in the passage, Mary's child is the promised king. This insignificant girl is going to have birth and birth into the world, the ruler of the world. The content of the favor, the reason she's blessed, is far more about the identity of this baby than the miracle of a virgin birth. His name, Jesus, do you know what it means? To rescue, to deliver, to save. What does the angel say? He will be great, the son of the most high. That title, the son of the most high, it's used of kings. It's kind of the, 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 the royal kind of the royal terminology used throughout the world. This, this child would be a king. This baby, more than any other as he grew up, could sing, I'm the king of the castle. Because his castle is the universe. His throne was the promised throne of his father, great, 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 great grandfather, David. See, God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants would be the ruler of the universe forever. It's a key passage to know. It's on the screen here. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. Here's what God says to Samuel. Sorry, to David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, i.e. you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What this messenger from God is saying to this insignificant girl is that your child is the promised Messiah, the one who would come and rule, the one who Israel had been waiting for for years, whose kingdom would not end. If this is true, this is amazing. You've got a front row seat into the king of the world being born, the one who will rule forever coming into this world. I want to listen. I want to know what's going on. Do, do you get the significance of what is unfolding here before our eyes? That this 14-year-old nobody would become a somebody. The mother of the biggest somebody ever. And the king of the universe, the son of God, the ruler of all things will become a nobody for us, a baby in the womb of a 14-year-old girl. In this section of Luke, there's kind of two pregnancies on view. Last week, we saw Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and kind of what was going on there of John preparing the way. And now we see from the other angle what happens with Mary. Two pregnancies. The mothers were both unexpected. Elizabeth's kind of in a nursing home. That's how old she is. And, and, and Mary... You don't expect a baby from a 14-year-old virgin, right? 
The mothers were unexpectant. The pregnancies, though, unplanned for the mother's behalf, had been planned since the beginning of time. All of creation and the plan of creation's creator had been looking forward to this moment. This moment we see right here. These two pregnancies from the beginning of the universe. How would you feel being in the shoes of Mary? (laughs) What do you say? You're from Nazareth. You're 14. You see this angel. You heard the stories. You, You know the history. You know 2 Samuel 7. You know the promises that God would send to someone. It's you? What, what would you be thinking? H- how do you respond to this word of God? Well, that's where we see the obvious question. <laughs> if it's me, this is the question that comes into my head. But I think it's for different reasons than you first might think. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, what does she say? How can this be since I've not been intimate with a man? She's like, how can I be pregnant? How can this happen? And she's not asking for evidence. She's not kind of saying, you know, explain to me how this can happen, like exactly what. I want, to, I want to know. She's not doubting. It's just never happened before. Someone been born without having sex from a virgin? Oh, throughout the Bible, there's been stories of barren people having children. Yes. Abraham and Sarah having children at old age. Yes. But a child from nothing, from a virgin? We can understand a question. How, how will this happen? Now, as an aside, one thing the Bible makes very clear is that the, ex, the Bible's expectation of children is to come from marriage. Throughout all of Scripture, that's, that's, that's the place of marriage. It's, one of its purposes is to see children come forward. Sex, says the Bible, is for marriage. Babies are for marriage. One man, one woman, one life. That's the way God made it. That's the way it hums and sings and goes best. And I've got to say that if you're doing it any other way, then you're ripping yourself off. You're ripping yourself off. You're ripping the person you're with off as well. You're ripping someone else's spouse or potential spouse off. You're doing damage to you and yourself and you're doing damage to your relationship with God. See, sex is kind of like glue. Sex bonds a couple together for life. And, and, and the more you do it and then break it off and go and try and apply the glue to someone else, it kind of becomes less sticky. It doesn't work as well. God made sex to what? Unite the two together, that they might become one flesh. That's what marriage is, a picture of. Sex is for marriage. If you're married and you're not having sex regularly, then I want to say, unless there are kind of emotional or medical things kind of not working properly for you, you're being foolish. So sex is actually good. Sex is great. God made sex for marriage. And I want to say, if you are married and you're not having sex, it's foolish. In your outline and on the screen, I've got a few stats for married people. Uh, If you're planning on being married, these are great and helpful stats for when you're married, not for now. Let's make that clear. But um, this guy's done a bit of research in the science behind a happy relationship. There you go. Let me show you the first thing. In the bedroom, um, the happiest couples have sex two to three times a week. There you go. If you're married, talk about that together. I'm not saying you have to. I'm not setting rules. Here's what we see. Next thing. More sex equals more joy. This is kind of what they're finding in in, in research. People are 55% more likely to report high levels of happiness when they have sex every few days. God made sex for marriage to make it work. Do it if you're married. The once a week boost, having sex once a week, makes people 44% more likely to have positive feelings. Sex is good. It's no surprise that people find this. God made sex for marriage to glue Two couple, two people, two couples, two people together. Let's be clear. The reality sometimes is, though, sex doesn't isn't going brilliantly. And I just want to give those of you with kids a bit of a, a kind of a view of the reality. Have a look at this next slide. 
How do kids impact a couple's happiness? Immediately following the birth of baby number one, 67% experience a big drop in marital satisfaction. Having kids makes life harder, but it's a great blessing. And we're going to see some of that a little bit later. So if sex is hard and you have kids, you're normal. (laughs) It's okay. 33%, by the way, one third, found they were just as satisfied or even more. So there's hope, right? There's hope. (laughs) It's not all kind of bad. Uh, The little kind of picture down the bottom makes me think maybe it is a bit bad. Married couples are unhappiest when kids are in preschool. I'm like, ouch, that's us. Uh, Couples' happiness levels increase once once the youngest kid has grown up and graduated. I'm like, that's a long time. (laughs) Everyone here who doesn't have kids is going, man, I'm not having kids. (laughs) Kids are brilliant. Suck it up. (laughs) But if sex sucks... I want to say, go and see someone about it. Go and see someone, um, maybe your doctor, because there are things that can help. There's a book on our bookstore downstairs, and the slide will come up right here, called The Best Sex for Life. Uh, it's just come out. It's by, it's a little bit awkward to say this, it's by a friend of mine's mum. Read a sex book from a friend's mum. She happens to be the leading sexologist in Sydney, at Sydney University. She's a solid evangelical Christian. This is a great book. I haven't read it all, um, but I, I have been to two conferences from her on sex. And the stuff she says is great. Uh, often in, in Sydney, we used to see her on the news occasionally, talking about the latest findings in sex. That the, even the secular media would go to her. But here's a book that she's written to understand how to have the best sex for life. Um, Grab the book if things are going great. If they're not, it's downstairs, you can buy it later. But do go and see someone. It's not worth stopping having sex for this sake. See, it's my prayer that the marriages in this church would be strong. Strong marriages. Marriages centered on Jesus. Marriages that are focused on mission and seeing people grow deeply in Jesus and coming to know Him. Marriages that are self-sacrificial. And marriages that are full of sex. Because that's how we keep sticking together. Want to know how to serve Jesus in your marriage? One of the ways is have sex. Want to know how to serve Jesus if you're engaged? Don't have sex. I want to be clear. Engagement isn't just like permission to do whatever we want because we're almost married. No. The Bible's pretty clear. Sex is for marriage. When the ring is on the finger and the commitment is made in front of others and you've made the promises, then you hit the go button. Want to know how to serve Jesus if you aren't married or engaged? Don't have sex. Don't have sex. God is very clear. It will destroy you. It will destroy others. And it will destroy your relationship with Him. He loves you. and He wants you to say, leave it. Until the time when you can express it, when it's fully at its peak when you're married. There's nothing wrong with sex. Contrary to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. They kind of say the Roman Catholic Church officially teaches that, that Mary um, was a virgin from that point on. She well, has, has always been a virgin. Problem is, Galatians 1.19, it's on the screen. Uh, this is what Paul says. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Uh-oh. Um, was James a virgin birth as well? Immaculate conception? It's interesting, the immaculate conception doesn't actually refer to um, Jesus being born. Uh, without sex. It's actually that the view of the Roman Catholic Church is that Mary, uh, Mary's birth was without sex. That Mary's mother didn't have sex. That's what the Immaculate Conception in Roman Catholic teaching kind of points to. Um, it's, just, it's just not true when it's said in Scripture. Does it matter if Mary was a virgin? Yes. Absolutely. It's the teaching of the Gospels. It's it's the teaching of any account that speaks of Jesus' birth throughout the Bible says she was a virgin. If it's not true, it means the Bible's lying on a pretty important point. Could could they have been mistaken? You know, didn't really kind of, hadn't worked it out. We've got to remember who wrote this Gospel. It's Luke. He's a doctor, a medical doctor. It's not just wishful, wishful thinking. He doesn't subscribe to the stork theory and kind of like, that's where babies come from. Little stork flies along and pops them down in a little basket. He's a doctor. He's, he's delivered babies. He gets it. Luke, the doctor, wants us to know that Jesus' birth was a virgin birth. It's amazing how God provided a doctor to tell us that, isn't it? In his generosity to us. 
But Luke also knew what was written 700 years earlier in Isaiah 7 verse 15. 14 actually, it's on the screen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son and name him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Isaiah prophesied that this would happen. Luke knew that this would happen. He's going, this is it, guys. This is it. And it tells us two key things. Number one, God will become human. That's big. And number two, it would happen in the flesh of a womb. Technically, the God of the Bible is one God, but three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father didn't become flesh. The Spirit didn't become flesh. It was God the Son, the person of God the Son who became flesh. And what's interesting is he'll remain in that fleshly state as a human in his resurrected body for all eternity. Jesus is like us, flesh and blood, ruling forever. The ruler of the universe is human. And we get to experience that with him if we trust him. But the other reason why this matters, that Jesus was a virgin birth, is Paul in Romans 5 says there are two humanities. There's everyone who is of Adam, for whom Adam was their first dad. And then there are those who are born again in Christ. So you've got Adam and Christ. The problem is all the descendants of Adam are in sin because, well, their father is a sinner and they are born in, in a relationship against God. But those born of Christ don't sin. But if Jesus was a descendant of Adam, that would mean... He was born a sinner because his father was a sinner, but he is not. Jesus' father never sinned. His father was God. If Jesus had a human father, he'd be sinful by association. He couldn't die for the world. He would at best be a one-for-one swap, someone perfect for someone else perfect. But if his father was God and he's God the Son, then he can pay the price for all our sin, for he's the one we've sinned against not some innocent third party. His death, if he is God, would be sufficient for all, not just for one. If Mary isn't a virgin, Jesus isn't God's son. It's that simple. So it's important. So important, the earliest creeds, the kind of statements of faith that we, that we have from kind of the early church, the Apostles' Creed says this on the screen, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's what they taught. Gabriel spells it out. You will have a son. His father will be God through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. And we'll see that it's the action of the Spirit, the kind of the shy member of the Trinity, who brings this child into the womb. It's kind of worth noting as a side point here, as, as we go through Luke, looking at the role of the Spirit, what you'll see is the Spirit of God is most glorified when your attention is on Jesus. That's what he exists to do. He doesn't want the spotlight. That's for Jesus. The Spirit places Jesus in the womb, then allows you to praise God for Jesus. He's kind of like, there we go, look at him. (laughs) That's his role. It's always how he operates. You want to honor the Spirit? Then honor the Savior. That's how he's glorified. Well, if that wasn't enough news for Mary... Gabriel then lets Mary in on this little secret. Actually, it's a big secret. (laughs) It's not just you, Mary, that's pregnant, but Elizabeth, your relative in the nursing home on the hill. She's six months pregnant too. I I saw a lady on the way to church this morning in a a walking frame. Happy, she looked joyful, walking along the side of the road. And I thought, wow, it's right. Babies don't normally come from people with walking frames. This is amazing. See, what God says happens. What God says happens. Irrespective of its likelihood, it's not wishful thinking that we'd like to see that it happen. It's, it's an historical observation. As God has said things, they've come to pass. The word of God through Gabriel to Mary and Zechariah was powerful because it was true. Humanly speaking, this is Unbelievable. Humanly speaking, this is amazing. But it's all true, all the same. And here's why. Nothing is impossible with God. 
It's the words of Scripture. With God, nothing is possible. There's no mission impossible with Him. He can do anything. But I'm tempted not to believe that. And my hunch is you are too. What do you think it's impossible for God to do? Moments where you're like, oh, but He wouldn't do that. Really, deep down, which promises of God do you again want to keep at a distance? What word of Jesus do you find hard to believe, to trust in, to let kind of put your life under? Well, throughout the pages of history, we see the promises of God fulfilled time and time again. God does what he promises. Remember the promise to Abraham? You would have a great name, you would have land and blessing and rest and all nations will be blessed through you. (laughs) What does Mary say about this child or the the angel? His name will be great. (laughs) You kind of see these, these promises coming. What about David? You would have a son who would be king forever. Promise to Isaiah that a descendant of Jesse would rule with righteousness and faithfulness, would rescue. All of these are being fulfilled here in this passage, in this baby. God promises to forgive us. He promises to change us. He promises to hear us. He promises to call us His children if we would trust Him. He offers us life forever with Him, forever with Him, with God, face to face. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. That's the future for those who trust in Jesus. And what we see is God keeps His promises. Do you believe Him? One thing that's vitally important when we're talking about the promises of God is to actually know what they are. Uh, if we think that He'll do things that He hasn't promised, if we think that He'll you know, give me a Maserati, or He'll, um, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, where does God promise to give me a Maserati? He doesn't. Uh, you actually got to, if you're going to hold God to account, you've got to hold Him to account on the things He's actually said, not stuff you've made up in your head. If we think He'll do things He hasn't promised, we're deluded. We can ask Him. There's no problems with asking Him. Although He says to ask in line with my will. And does God want me to have a Maserati? Well, I can't say that's going to further the gospel. That's His will. You know, but so many people are told that God promises things, which He doesn't. And they get bitter and angry and wonder why it hasn't happened. You've got to know what God has promised. But if He has promised something, you can be dead sure He's going to do it. 110% certain that He's going to do what He said. You know why? Because His name rides on it. He's put His name to it. It's been out there and published and He will do what He says because His name matters. God acts in line with His promises. Nothing is impossible for Him. He didn't promise to give us a child from a virgin birth. But he did to Mary. So how does Mary respond? This next section, if you're following in the outline, the response of faith. We saw kind of what happened when Zechariah heard Gabriel. He questions the truthfulness of the angel. How can I know this is going to happen? But listen to this teenage girl. 138. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left. I am the Lord's slave. May it be done to me according to your word. That is the response of faith, isn't it? Of taking God at his promises. To understand the kind of depth of what's going on. I think I didn't first get it. Teenage pregnancy is a shame in this culture. And even more to someone who's engaged. It doesn't play well for your family's name in a shame culture where it matters. It doesn't play well to her fiancé. Got a baby? Okay. Nor to those around. You're kind of shunned, pushed aside. Mary isn't just saying, yes, I'll bear your son. 
fact, the angel didn't really even give her the opportunity to say yes or no. He just said, this is what's going to happen. It right? had nothing to do with her, but she says she's willing to what? To endure the shame. Pregnant but not married. Sneered at. Looked upon as a whore. See, there are no DNA paternity tests. She can't prove, look, it wasn't these guys. There's no external verification, except for the one little moment God provides when Mary meets Elizabeth and John inside of Elizabeth jumps for joy and Elizabeth notices that this is the one to come. But before that happens, how does she take the word of God? As the word of God. God does what he promises. I am the Lord's slave. You know, I think if only I had that view on life. If only that was my response. May it be done with me according to your word. May I put my life in line with your word. That's something I want to pray. Something I want for me, for you. Mary's someone I want to emulate in this regard. She's like the model believer. I am the Lord's slave. May it be done to me according to your word. Imagine if my prayers were more like, Father, use me than Father, help me. Imagine if that word use was kind of on my lips more than the word help. I'm not saying we can't ask God for help. We should. He wants us to. He commands us to. But that we would pray that God would use us, that people might know him, that his name might be held high, that our brothers and sisters would stand on that last day perfect in Jesus. Well, despite immense shame, despite relational hatred, despite the fear of having the Son of God in your womb, Mary takes God at His word. But it's not blindly. It's based on evidence. It's based on God's promises throughout history. And then God gives Mary this kind of comfort through the words of Elizabeth. Have a look at verse 42. You are the most blessed of women, and your child will be blessed, says Elizabeth. (laughs) Do you see this? Elizabeth is filled with joy when she meets Mary. I think this is helpful for us. When people get who Jesus really is, their response is joy. If you aren't joyful, at least sometimes, maybe you, you need to look again at Jesus. For this is the creator of the world come to die for you. I think when it comes to Mary, we as kind of Christians can fall into one of two traps. We can either kind of try and see too much of Mary. We see her as perfect, the one you can pray to. The Bible's clear. Jesus is God's son, not Mary. Jesus is the one we come to. Jesus is the only one who's been perfect, who's died in our place and can take our request to the Father. But the other trap is, I think, the one we are most likely to fall into. It's the other extreme, to think too little of Mary. We view her as she had viewed herself, humble, nothing special. Someone in a conversation comes up to us and says, oh, blessed Mary. And we're like, oh, Mary's not that important. Oh, she's, you know, she's, she's, she's going to Jesus' mother, but then there's nothing. Uh, we kind of continually pull Mary down. I don't think that's right. She is the mother of our Savior. And Elizabeth says she's blessed. I'm going to say something now that's probably politically incorrect, but I think, it's, I think it's right. God has a high view of motherhood. Motherhood is a good thing. I think in a feministic society, uh, we can sometimes think, no, 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 unless you're working in the, in the workplace, then you're only equal. Like, working at home as a mum isn't as important. I want to say the Bible's like, no, <laughs> raising children is an important thing. It's a good thing. Now, I'm not saying all mums must stay at home and wear white so they match the kitchen appliances and stay in the kitchen with bare feet. It's not the view of the Bible. It's the character of what people say about Christians, but it's just not true. In Acts, Lydia was a successful businesswoman. And Proverbs 31, the kind of model of a a godly wife, what do we hear? That she's the provider for the family. That she's into property management and investment, wine production. She evaluates a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard with her earnings. She runs a startup clothing store from home. She sells and makes linen garments. She's pretty busy, right? And this is, it's not like, oh, you can't work. No, no, no. 
But what our society does is it says, well, no, unless you're working, you're not as equal, you're not as important. Don't find your worth in work. Find it in how you serve your Saviour. So Mary is blessed because of her son. Elizabeth calls this baby her Lord. Right? It's the only time in history that worship of a child isn't idolatry. Because he is the king. That's kind of our natural reaction, isn't it? When we have a child or we kind of worship it. We're like, I'm going to get everything. I'm going to do the best thing for it. I'm going to do it. But this one, well, he is the king. God has become flesh in the womb of a girl. The promised king is here. The fulfillment of all God's promises. It was exactly the right thing to do to base our date system around the birth of Jesus. Exactly. His coming is the event that the rest of the world needs to be interpreted by. Mary is blessed because of her son. But there's one other reason that she's blessed. And I think this is the bigger one, actually. She's blessed because she believed. Verse 45. She who has believed is blessed because what was spoken to her by the Lord will be fulfilled. What did she say? I am the Lord's slave. I trust you. You notice at the end of this exchange, verse 38 again. I'm the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Kind of an abrupt ending, right? Why didn't the angel say, spot on, you've won the, you know, the grand prize, good work. The angel didn't say, well done, Mary, after she said it. He just left. Because that's exactly what you're supposed to do when the word of, with the word of God when you encounter it. Believe it. She did exactly what she's supposed to do. Nothing more, nothing special. That's exactly how we should respond when God speaks. May it be so. Believe it. Trust it. Not blindly, but because God has such a great track record. God's promises in the past, the way he's fulfilled them. There's not one ancient historian that I've ever come across that's credible, Christian or not, that would say that 2 Samuel 7, that passage we read, was written after Jesus. No one says that. Or Genesis 15 was written after Jesus. No, someone's not gone back in and rewritten stuff like that after the event. Look at the promises, the expectation, the history. I think to be intellectually honest, you've got to take seriously the evidence that Jesus fulfills these promises written somewhere between 1500 to 700 years earlier. You've got to. Jesus doesn't come in a vacuum. Well, here's the thing. And if you get one thing from today, I hope it's this. Everyone's like, okay, listen. God keeps his promises. His word is more solid than oak. If he keeps crazy stuff, like the promise of a baby from an old woman and the birth of a baby from a virgin, if he keeps his promises to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to David, what reason do I have to doubt? If he can do those greater things, the most logical and rational outcome, given God's past performance, is to take him at his word. And my guess is that you'd like to take him at his word. You'd, you'd like to have what he offers. But like every single one of us, we don't want to owe anyone anything. The promise requires us to recognize we need help. That we need to ask someone else to do something that we couldn't do. And we go to extraordinary lengths to say two of the most destructive words we can ever speak. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I, I don't need this. I'll be right. Friends, that's called Pride. In verse 51, Mary is so perceptive in her, descript- in her description of pride and damning at the same time. Have a look on the screen. Verse 51, God has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. So that the future of the proud who won't accept God's promises is not with God. I need to hear that. I need to hear that pride is going to rip me away from the God who said, trust me. 
Not trust yourself, but trust me. And pride is so powerful because you can't tell a proud person by looking at them. It's because there's something that happens in our hearts. Well, the antidote to pride is faith. It's to trust someone else, to trust Jesus. It's exactly what Mary did. Whether it's trusting Jesus for the first time or trusting Him for the direction of your life, trusting Him through suffering and pain that He is good and that He does promise to work for the good of those who love Him, trusting Him that you, even, even you can be forgiven, that there is nothing too much for Him. Listen to the trust of Mary in this, this kind of song at the end. It's, it's, a, it's a great song. It's, it's historically called the Magnificat, which means my soul magnifies in Latin. Verse 46, my soul proclaims the greatness of God and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. This is the response of faith. At Auckland EV, we kind of separate the way we kind of do ministry among five key areas. Uh, magnification, mission, membership, maturity, and ministry. I'll just happen to start with them. We think they're a helpful grid. But basically what magnification is, is about showing how amazing God is. That we might glorify God and love and delight in Him. Partly that's what Lyndon is paid to do for us. To be the joy police. To go around and, and help us go, hang have we seen this? Have we seen how amazing Jesus is? Well, one expression of faith He's praising God. Kind of how you, how you, one of the reasons you can know a spirit-filled believer, someone who trusts Jesus, a person who's got who he is, because their desire is to praise God in a way that they just never had before. They suddenly want to worship this guy, Jesus. No matter how bad they sing, they just want to sing. We want to praise him because he's amazing. I love hearing people sing badly. I love it. It's brilliant when people are like, oh, I don't care because I actually think this is true and I just want to sing and I want to encourage my people around me because it's true. It doesn't matter if you can sing in tune or not. If you can practice, go, go for it. But sing. This is great. What I can't stand is when Christians don't sing. I don't get it. Like, why would you not sing if Jesus has given you everything? Why would you not be like, Far out. I want to sing about the truth of what you've done. I want to sing about the hardships of my life and how you've saved me. It's just instinctive that when you get who Jesus is and what he's done, you want to praise him. You want to speak of him to your friends and family and neighbors. And that I, I wish I wouldn't shut up about Jesus. Pray we would not shut up about Jesus. So if you get bashful or embarrassed when you sing, get over it. Seriously, you're not singing to please others. You're singing to encourage others about the truth, about the words. Colossians says to teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs in your heart to God. We're praising God and we're encouraging one another. Sing. Sing like you mean it. It was great this morning to have kind of little sections in, in those two songs where we could hear one another really, really well, singing of the amazing grace God has given us. I'm like, this is partly why I come to church, to be reminded of how God has impacted each of us. Singing is part of the way we align our head and our heart. I long for us to be a church that responds authentically. I'm not saying to put it on, to come and just kind of look like everything's awesome. No, when life is tough, recognize that, but be reminded of how much tougher Jesus is. So friends, don't come in late on Sundays. Come in and join us at the start when the service actually starts at 10.15, when we get to sing and encourage each other. Be here early and say hi to encourage one another. You know, every religion has its kind of songs. They've got their mantras and their chants. But only Christianity has joyful singing. Because only we have a salvation that is secure. It's based on the promise of God that's guaranteed. Friends, I hope you can see today that God is faithful to his promises. You have every reason to trust him. No reason to doubt. If you haven't yet trusted your life on his promises, then I want to urge you today, sort it out. 
Work out what's holding you back. Work out what door you're keeping closed that the creator of the universe wants you to open. If there's things that you're not sure on that you you think, oh, I've got these kind of issues, come and talk to us about them. Talk to a Christian about them. Come to Explaining Christianity and ask the question. Don't let it go unanswered and go, oh, well, this question hasn't been answered, but not seek an answer. You'll miss out on eternity, on the promise of God. It won't be, it's okay. But if you do trust Jesus, ask yourself, what am I holding back from him? What part of my life have I not yet handed over? Or am I tentative in handing over and then pulling it back a bit? What things have I not yet put under his control? What areas am I holding back from Mary's line, take my life, I am your slave? And share them with a friend. Pray about them. Share them with your your connect group. Pray that God would allow you to trust him there. As friends, the joy of trusting a God who's faithful to his promises is amazing. Let go of it. Stop trying to run it yourself and let the creator of the universe take control of your life. Because friends, nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray. Father God, as we see this amazing, magnificent picture of your Son becoming flesh, of you fulfilling your promises and standing in your word, we are captivated by your Son. We pray that you would use us, take us, And use us so that people might see how great Jesus is. Use us to encourage those who are in Christ, to see them standing on that last day. Lord, don't let us waste any moments of our life. But let us trust you and live a way that brings you glory. And Father, for those of us who have not yet put our life in Jesus' hands, we ask that you'd reveal yourself to us. That we will look at the evidence, look at the history and come and see what an amazing God you are. Help us to actually go and find out the questions that we have and sort them out. For Lord, this is far too important to gamble your life on and be wrong. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And we pray that our eyes would be fixed on Him alone.